0: Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com designed for work.
1: Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast.
2: Hey, everybody. It's Dan from the Vergecast. On this week's interview episode, Casey Newton and I sat down with Kayvon Bakepore. He's the head of product at Twitter. Obviously, you know we talk about Twitter all the time. Casey covers Twitter very closely. Kayvon walked us through how he got to Twitter. He was actually one of the founders of Periscope, Twitter acquired Periscope. He rose up to be the head of product at Twitter. How he's thinking about the platform, how he wants it to move a little faster. They've just done some big changes on the back end to make that happen. How he manages the intersection of Twitter's policies, its content moderation systems, and how that stuff is expressed in features. That stuff is very complicated. This is really interesting to hear him think about it and explain how it works. And at one point, Casey and I just asked for features over and over again. You'll see. Kayvon is great. He's very direct. He's very open, very honest. It was a fascinating conversation. Check it out. Kayvon Bakepore, head of product at Twitter. Kayvon Bakepore, welcome to the virtual Thanks for having me. You are head of product at Twitter, which is a service I think everybody uses and very interested in. Uh, but I want to just, the first question I have is, you came to Twitter through Periscope. So just talk about that process and how you landed at Twitter and how you took the role at Twitter.
3: Sure. How far back do you want me to go? Full life story <laughs> or, or Periscope? Yeah.
2: When you were a boy, you were like, I'm going to live stream some videos.
3: When I was a wee lad, yeah, Yeah. so my, um, my co-founder and I have actually been Best friends since like second grade, basically, and we started our first company together, which we uh, we built, we got acquired. We were working there for for five years, and um, we both eventually decided to to leave and take some time off and travel because we knew we wanted to start another company, but didn't, didn't really know what we wanted to do yet. And in the course of our kind of like year off and traveling. We both kind of got pretty addicted to this idea of how could we help people see what was happening anywhere in the world through other people's eyes. And the way we described it at the time was we wanted to build the closest thing to the feeling of teleportation. And we started thinking about this idea for two main reasons. One, you know, this was in 2013, and and then obviously, like, smartphones were pervasive. These really sophisticated cameras, as we were just talking about, were super pervasive with high-speed Internet connections. But yet there is no way to kind of, like, rent the eyes and ears of someone around the world to see what was happening through their eyes. And I particularly was excited about this in the context of one of the trips I was going on at the time was to Turkey, It was just like a place I wanted to go. And um, the uh, Taksim Square protests were kind of in full swing at the time. And I had this very funny argument with my mom where she was like, no, 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 you can't go to Istanbul right now. It's dangerous. And I was like, no, 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 no. That's like CNN dramatizing things like it's actually not tear gas like on the street that my hotel was on. But Joe and I, my co-founder, were talking about like, why can't I actually see what's happening on the street that my hotel is on? Like, what if there is a way for me to rent someone's eyes and ears and kind of see through their see, see through their eyes? And so that was kind of the inkling that led to us, you know, prototyping solutions to this. And we went through kind of some a bunch of different variations before we arrived at what became Periscope. And Along that journey, probably uh, eight months in, uh, while we were still in private beta, Twitter found us and uh, uh, a few of the bleeders, you know, Jack, Dick, um, and a few of the other folks um, at the company used the prototype and reached out to us and basically very quickly were like, we would love for you all to pursue this vision with Twitter support. And that was kind of fast forward and um, we ended up joining Twitter um, and that was almost five years ago. It would be five years in January.
4: And how did you get from there to now uh, leading Twitter's product efforts?
3: Um, I would say I've had, like, three different chapters of my time at Twitter. So for the first two years of my time at Twitter, I was hyper-focused on on Periscope. My role was CEO of, of Periscope. We had a basically a separate organizational structure with a separate office, like, physically. We were, like, two and a half blocks away from San Francisco HQ, but we had our own space. And I was kind of laser-focused on on Periscope, you know, from launching it to the, you know, two years after that. Uh, my second chapter, which started around that time, was leading the the video efforts of the company, which obviously Periscope was a part of. But there's lots of other video efforts, um, you know, VOD on Twitter, our professional kind of like publishing efforts. Um, and that was kind of my foray into broader Twitter. And it was around that time that um, I joined Jack's executive leadership team and kind of started getting exposed to Twitter more generally and not to say that in the first chapter I wasn't exposed to it, but it was it was far less intimate than like actually leading some of the areas of the product that were yeah you're getting for. the
4: real talk when you're on the executive team.
3: Also that like yeah. just getting exposed to like the problems yeah. and the challenges and the opportunities that that Twitter generally was thinking about. Whereas I was again like hyper focused and on on Periscope stuff. So that was chapter two, and then um, about a year and a half ago, I guess it was June of last year. Um, chapter three is my new role, leading product. Which has been, it's been a really fun kind of progression because I feel like it was important for me to also figure out my own reconciliation of being laser focused on Periscope, understanding and believing in how Periscope contributed to the mission of of Twitter. But then over time, I actually, like putting aside my role changing, I became more passionate about all the other um, opportunities and challenges um, with the the Twitter product. And so it's it was it's been a I feel really fortunate having had the progression that I have, such that when i when I did take on my new role, um, a year plus ago, I, I, I didn't feel like a total stranger to the company, to the organization, to the challenges. It's still, it's been a lot of learning to get
4: ramped up on stuff that I, I didn't have nearly as much context around. But um,
3: yeah, that's that's been the journey. It's been fun.
4: That's, that's right. Fun. And you're now, if not the, then one of the longest serving heads of product uh, at Twitter. I'm constantly reminded, <laughs> yes, um, not least of which by
3: you. Um, for the first year, it was kind of like a running joke for me, like whenever there was controversy, like, well, I've got like two months left on the job, so I might
4: as well You know, tell you how I feel about the situation. There you go. But you, you made it anyway. Well, great. Well, knock on, uh, wood. Knack, knock on wood.
2: Yeah, this interview is the, the end of it, on. Be be careful. <laughs> I feel like this is a setup job, guys.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of setup, you know, Twitter
2: quite the... is a
4: product <laughs> that people have opinions about, you know, from time to time. And we thought it would be a fun and novel thing to, you know, I don't know, just you know, kick around some ideas. Um, but as it, sort of a way of getting into that, uh, I want to take something topical, uh, which is that uh, the day that we're recording this, uh, y- y'all rolled out, searches in direct messages so now if you're looking for someone who you have uh, dm'd you can now look up their name and i think you know we could all agree that is a a good and obvious thing and it it seemed like it maybe took longer to arrive you know than it might have and i know that twitter has historically had uh some challenges around shipping things so i wondered if you could maybe give us some insight on where you're at with the product development process and how is it that a, a feature like that which again very good but arrives on this day in 2019
3: so, fair question. and I, I, It might be helpful for me to maybe start with some context um, around DMs generally. Yeah. So DMs, as, as much as I, I feel like I can pick up that you you love DMs, I and do. I'd, I'd love to hear more about that, um, you may be surprised to know that DMs for a good chunk of time, like in in the order of years, were basically as a product feature on maintenance mode. And so the reason that we you didn't see a lot of features like search or any other set of things that you might reasonably expect in a, in a modern messaging product um, that's private, um, the reason why you didn't see a lot of that stuff land is not necessarily because it took us a long time. It's because we'd made an explicit decision not to prioritize it. Now, rightly or wrongly, you can debate that. But we changed our perspective on that about a year ago where we not only decided that we shouldn't have – A service like DMs on maintenance mode, but that we actually should have a strong point of view on like why private messaging is important, because it is somewhat counterintuitive as a a service that whose purpose is grounded in serving public conversation. It's you'd be right to say, wait a second, (laughs) why are you investing in private messaging? And, And our perspective on that is you know public conversation at least in the form that it exists today is is it's a pretty high anxiety form of talking it's a combat um, sport yeah you're getting on stage in a public square and saying something that is subject to the public scrutiny of everyone it lasts forever it's subject to the popularity contest of likes and retweets and all the other social engagements we have and it's nevertheless very powerful as a form of of broadcasting you know something you care about but that's like on the spectrum of talking that's on the very like public lasts forever subject to public scrutiny and public replies and you know there is this other side of the spectrum where you can have more more private conversations whether it's one on one or groups and then there's lots of rich stuff in between like we are having a public conversation that's in a small room right now yeah. right like we're having three people and a couple listeners in this in this studio that eventually will be published like this analog that we're talking that that we're doing right now doesn't exist as a mechanic on Twitter and we think that's a miss Anyway, I point out the spectrum to you because I I believe DMs fit in very clearly into that spectrum. It happens to be on one one kind of severe side of the spectrum, which is the more like private – you have room to air out your thoughts one-on-one or with a group. And sometimes you need to – scratch the itch of what you're thinking to really feel um, like you can articulate it well enough in public. Like, we believe we should be providing a venue for people to develop their thinking before they put it on the public record, one. Two, oftentimes, when when you see things that are happening in the world, you may want to talk about them in a smaller form, either with a group of people who have shared topical interest in that thing, or whether literally in a private forum. And DMs very clearly fulfill that need, and we felt like we'd been underserving them. And lots of kind of table stakesy ways, which is why now that we're prioritizing, we literally have built a team from scratch. Like yeah. we've, huh. we've, for the most part, like we have a new PM, we've got a new engineering team. Now that the team is is healthy and, and is, you know, has a charter that is kind of like, has been ratified, like they're turning out like lots of great stuff. They're working on really great, and you haven't even seen the best of it. Like there's a lot of stuff that the team is working on that I'm excited for you all to see that isn't in public experiment yet. So, and we wouldn't have, that would not have been my answer three years ago because we were, it was on maintenance mode.
4: I love it. I mean, this is exciting to me because one, just like as somebody who wants Twitter, the company to succeed, messaging is the lifeblood of so many great social products. And I know that Twitter is really focused on how many daily active users it has right now. Nothing builds DAU like a messaging product, right? So I hope eventually it spins off into a standalone thing. I hope it has all kinds of, like, cool widgets and stuff. Neil, well, would you use, like, a standalone DM app?
2: Uh, you know, my DMs are closed, and so I actually, I think, has kind of an upside and downside. The upside is it's a very high-quality conversation, right? It's, like, just people, like, that, you know, I'm in a follow relationship with. But I often find that that's where the conversation starts. That's the easiest way to get a hold of me. Like Mm -hmm. we already follow each other on Twitter. We're like maybe talking in public, you know, like make the switch DMs. And then it's like, here's my phone number. Here's my email. Like let's move this to the place where I actually do conversations. The downside is they're closed. So like it's a very limited set of people, which I guess in in other ways is an upside. I guess my my question here is like there are other table stakes of a messaging service now. Like I would like to see DMs be encrypted, right? I would like to file attachments and like there's all kinds of – crazy things you could add to a messaging product, but some of them are really important, like encryption is important to me. Is that something you guys are thinking about?
3: Definitely. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a long list of encrypted, uh, there's a long list of, I think, features that are table stakes, some more squarely important for why DMs are important for us. And I I put encryption in that bucket. It's it's not one of the first things you'll see us launch. That's mostly because, you know, as a a first project, as we've kind of built this team from scratch, basically, we felt like there were other projects that we could sequence first, whereas encryption is a pretty gnarly one that... um,
4: Yeah, that's a whole like policy thing. And you got to yeah. There's those considerations. There's also, like, there's a minimum
3: viable set of things that you need to build for encryption to be useful, i.e., like, encrypting one-on-one communication is different than encrypting group conversations. Um, encrypting media is a different level of scope than encrypting just DMs that have text in it. So, like, we're, we're definitely thinking about all these things, but, like, philosophically, like, absolutely, we believe that we should be able to support encryption. But I'm curious, like, other than that, like, what are the other – I mean, you, you all are obviously power users of the product. Like, what are the other things you would expect specifically within a DM product in Twitter?
4: I mean, I'm, I'm a believer that single-purpose tools are great, which is why I tend to like standalone apps. Some people think that's crazy. They want the entire experience in one thing, and they get frustrated when they have to switch back and forth. But I think that if you had kind of a blank canvas like that, you could do a lot more with it. I think you look at uh, some of the things that other social apps are doing with their messaging apps around, like, ephemeral sharing, um, I think, is really interesting. Uh, group conversations, I think, can be uh, really good. You know, my, my DMs are open. And so it winds up being kind of my inbox to the world. And so maybe if you want to give me a, a tip, like you, you reach out to my uh, DMs first, um, would love an encrypted way for, for people to do that. But, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm just really excited to hear there's a team working on it. Um, and like to, to your point. DMs are where a lot of work gets done that then later shows up uh, as a, a better public conversation. I had uh, one of my very favorite writers uh, like wrote something that was like very gently critical of me today, and like we didn't go back and forth in public about it on Twitter. Like he just sent me a DM and we you know traded a few friendly messages. Um, so I think that kind of thing happens a lot.
3: Yeah, it's it's sort of telling to me that there are there are many customers who are frequently DMing for whom th- those same people are not frequently tweeting in public. And there's something to learn from that around the comfort of having a space um, where you can control the audience who can participate in that conversation. And like DMs are so clearly that. But again, one of our like biggest strategic initiatives right now is more generally, we, we call it sort of conversations, which is a pretty obviously simple and intuitive word. But for us, it's like that spectrum that I was talking about earlier, filling in that spectrum and being super thoughtful around where the biggest customer needs are that we don't currently fulfill as a product or that people are kind of hacking together because despite not having – great mechanisms for this. We have customers who hack this together into the product. They create multiple accounts and they'll have some of those accounts be protected or some of them be public but like have a very narrow follow graph. And they're essentially trying to do what what we're describing here but by hacking together the product in ways that it wasn't necessarily intended. And so we can learn a lot and we have learned a lot just by productizing those you know, we call them help wanted signs in the jobs framework. Like people are asking for help and they're hacking, to get, hacking the product in a way that we can learn from and productize. Yeah. Which, by the way, Twitter's history is filled with, I think our best, some of our best innovations have been productizing things that customers have hacked together, whether it's the app mention or whether it's the hashtag. Um, And so I think there's a lot lot to learn from that, the retweet. The retweet, yeah. Uh,
4: Well, let's talk about uh, another product that y'all have introduced recently, um, or at least described, which is this interstitial that you're going to put in front of some tweets that might violate your standards, but you've decided to keep up because they're newsworthy. This week uh, we saw the president tweet some things that suggested that maybe there would be a civil war if he was impeached, and some people wrote takes about how um, you know, Twitter, if, if it shouldn't ban his account outright, should maybe uh, at least have used the interstitial in that case. So it seemed like a good chance to ask you, like, how and why did you build this kind of interstitial thing? And then how does the company think about when it might actually use it?
3: Yeah, so I would say that there's two different Kind of components of this conversation, at least, and in, in, in how we think about it, that I I, I want to distinguish because I find that they sometimes are conflated together. Um, there's this notion of the what's in the public interest, which we've we've talked about, like us having a perspective on as a company and our policies, and then separate but related is this this product feature, which is the interstitial or the, um, the sort of like information pain that we put on, on tweets um, and how and how and when we would use that. So let, let's talk about, about both of them. Um, so with respect to the public interest uh, concept, really what we've said is there will be, in particular from um, people in powerful positions or public officials that have a certain you know, threshold of following and greater. We will bias as a company towards keeping up tweets, even if they violate our policies, as a default. And that's not something that everyone will agree with. Like I know Kara, for example, like openly and blatantly disagree with that, and (laughs) that's fine. But like we have very clearly said as an organization that we believe that these tweets from these types of folks, we intend to keep on the platform even if they violate our policies Um, because we believe it's in the public's interest to know. Related to that, the reason why we built the interstitial is because when we make such a decision that something does violate our policies but that we're going to keep it up anyway— we want to be able to make that clear and transparent and understandable in the product experience so that you don't rely on a tweet from Twitter or a blog post from Casey or a CNN artic- uh, article or TV broadcast or whatever to understand the fact that, oh, yeah, yeah, this did violate the policies, and here's why Twitter didn't take it down. So that is the thesis of why that feature exists, and it would only be used in the case that we deem a tweet as violating our policies, but that we, we keep up nevertheless because of this public interest notion. We hear lots of feels about that and the feels and again i'm curious to get your thoughts but my understanding of the feels are there's really two different notions right some folks really do disagree with that um that decision to keep keep tweets up that we believe are in the public interest and that's uh, i respect that but um we've we've made the decision that that's how we want to operate um two i think there is there has been and this is where i think we've got work to do there has been a lot of confusion around how we make those decisions and what criteria we use to make those decisions and i think in the absence of that clarity and transparency it's super understandable that there is frustration and like borderline sometimes like lack of trust on like how that process even works and that's something that i think we we understand i i, I agree with and we are we're going to hold ourselves accountable to coming back publicly with an articulation of how we make those decisions what is the criteria we use and, Um, so that it's more understandable how we might apply that to a specific tweet or not. Um, Separate from all of this – and by the way, I should say on the interstitial – sorry, on the public interest exemption, there is a case where we will actually take a tweet down. And that is if one of these individuals um, says something that is inciting – violence or or harm against a private individual, it doesn't matter who that person is, we will take action on that tweet. Yeah. That is a very specific exemption. Um, it has to be a private individual, not a public figure. And again, people might disagree with that, but that is our stated policy right now. And I, I do believe that we have been enforcing our policies consistently given that standard. Now, separate to all of this, and I might be preempting some of your questions, but just to get no, everything out on, yeah. the, on the table, um, <clears throat> separate from all of this, there is an independent question around What do we believe the policies should be around which we use a remediation like the interstitial? Or what other such product features should we create that allow us to take actions that are different than just keeping content up or taking content down? I believe that one of the challenges we've had as a company over the last 13 years is that our primary form of remediation has been, do we take this tweet down or not? Mm. And that's a super heavy hammer that doesn't provide a flexible enough product experience around how you remediate different forms of severity. And the interstitial is like scratching the surface of one of these such remediations that gets you away from just enforcing based on take down or take up. And I I do believe that there's other things that we should be doing and thinking about that that go beyond that. So that's kind of like uh, maybe like three different components
4: of how we think about the problem. I mean, one alternative is that the official Twitter account could quote tweet it and say, damn, now that's a bad tweet something to think about <laughs> I don't yeah.
3: think we need that we have you for that
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, it's true I will point out a bad tweet from time to time I will say I am uh, actually mostly aligned with you on this policy stuff I think that if you were to ban some really bad politician um, that person's fans would just create an account and that politician would be posting elsewhere and some bot would be screenshotting it and posting it on Twitter right I actually think the, the technical question of how you stop someone from using Twitter is maybe harder than it looks particularly when it comes to you know a politician who has millions of followers, I also do get really worried about uh, politicians using the platform to incite violence, um, and I hope when the time comes that a politician really does use, use the platform that way, that, you know, Twitter uh, sticks to its guns, um, but, you know, the alternative is that Twitter has to spend a lot of time um, deciding, like, what are the boundaries of free speech in America, and I, I just don't really t- want to trust any pu- a public company with that. Neil,
2: So, maybe. I mean, the thing you're describing, when you describe remediation against policy— Uh, I mean, you're the head of product at a a huge Silicon Valley tech company, and that, like, quite frankly, is uh, some cop shit, right? Like, you have to build a product that enforces policies in a way that uh, I think Twitter in particular sits right at the center of. You have a trust and safety team, a legal team that's developing policies, rules for how people behave, and then your product either incentivizes people to behave in certain ways or punishes them when they don't. Or provide some transparency into why other decisions get made. I think I'm fairly sure that is like a unique moment in software history. Like I don't think like Windows 3.1 had that architected into it. And I'm I'm very curious how you think about that is like the traditional head of product role is like, you know, I'm gonna build some cool software features. People are gonna use them, they're gonna use the product more, hopefully we'll make some money, right? Like this is now very much directly. When does Twitter censor the president of the United States, right? And, like, how are you thinking about that role, the split between product and policy, and how to manage all of the many demands that you have?
3: Well, I guess you said a lot of things there. I'm trying to tease apart what the question well, is. Well, do but you I believe my-
2: Windows 3.1 had uh, <laughs> uh, uh, speech enforcement? Yeah, but it's, like, entirely new for the product to enforce the law, right? Like, a normal person walking down the street, you know, if Congress changes some law, they just keep walking down the street. Twitter changes its policy about what you can and cannot tweet, the product can actually affirmatively enforce it, right? And that's that's not normal necessarily. That's much more impact on individual people and how they behave. So how do you think about balancing that responsibility against keeping the platform as open as I think Twitter's values want it to be?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think what you're highlighting is that we are, we're in this fascinating and fortunate but challenging position where Twitter plays a really important Role in the world, I believe, and we have to be super conscious about that role and that responsibility, and and take it very seriously. And I, that's why I I feel like there's a fair share of like incredible excitement, passion, and like slight degree of being terrified about like doing our having having the roles that we do. I, I personally find it. Extremely challenging and really gratifying, but I think to your maybe more specifically to your question is I I don't I think it's really important that we not divorce things like the product from the policy and the enforcement around the policy because it is at the end of the day like an end to end experience and I think quite frankly one of the reasons why we've maybe um, over the last. You know, decade um, haven't moved as quickly as possible to solve some of the foundational issues that we're now hyper focused on is because we did think of them as somewhat divorced, and we didn't really acknowledge and prioritize as much as we should have early on um, some of these really critical things. So, like the fusion of those things together, I think is why we've got we've got a lot of work to do, and why like health is such a crucial priority for us that is not a. It's not a policy priority versus a product priority versus an engineering priority. It's just like it's a Twitter priority, and it's an end-to-end set of things that we have to do. Um, and there's an interplay between how we can um, – you know, we have existing rules. We have to make sure that we're enforcing those rules better. But then sometimes the rules aren't right. we got to create new rules. But then also sometimes the product isn't right, and we are – using as a crush the policies and the enforcement of those policies to really make up for deficiencies in the product. And so the creation of new product vectors might then lead to new rules that then have gnarly enforcement criteria around them. So I think it's an interplay that um, we have to be super thoughtful of. And there isn't any one silver bullet. Like we have to kind of do all of the things, like enforce the current policies that we have better. Think of where our current policies need to be evolved. And also, quite frankly, where we've Underinvested the most evolve the product experience for example, and this is like a hypothetical example if you had the ability to tweet and decide who can reply to your tweet publicly or not. Mm -hmm. That like a whole class of what we would consider abusive today, i.e. like people getting all up in your mentions and replying to your to your tweet and and having like um, a dog pile on a conversation you're trying to have. Suddenly that abuse vector is fundamentally different because if you introduce a product mechanic that can gives you the control of who can respond to your tweet publicly. So that's just one example of I think we've been under-investing in how product mechanic changes, and in particular incentive changes, can then alter the ecosystem of how people interact on the platform.
2: So where does that policy team sit with you in that kind of decision matrix? I mean, to me, the most interesting thing about every sort of person in your kind of position I talk to is, where where do we locate trust and safety in policy, right? Like, If the product and the policy are influencing each other so directly, is that one integrated team? Is it... You know, we're giving presentations to each other every week. Like, how does that actually work for you?
3: Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's something that we we talk about a lot. And I think the company has gone through its own evolution of how uh, both both in terms of structure and decision making and and and, um, and and priority. Like there were times where we just didn't prioritize any of this stuff in from a product standpoint. So um, I think the way I think about it now is. Something like, I mean, this is true for everything, but in particular, health takes a village. It takes the policy team. It takes our sort of, we call the Twitter services team, which does a lot of our, uh, which does all of our enforcement. It takes the product engineering, design, resources, public policy team. At the end of the day, like, I, I personally feel accountable for the product experience. And so we have to make decisions that um, are the right fusion of, you know, policy and enforcement, um, but also like the scaffolding of how the product experience gets used. And those are highly collaborative conversations that, in particular, particular are complex when it comes to creating new um, product vectors. Um, and when it comes to, you know, um, the, the more, the less new they are, you can kind of decompose them very clearly. Like, if we have a if we have a policy right now, like the enforcement, there's a, you know, the enforcement of that policy is relatively less complex than, hey, we're trying to build this whole new surface area that actually has a different thesis around how we want people to use it. And like, what should the net new policy for this, this feature or this interaction be? And how would we enforce that? Um, and those are, as we, in particular, as as we we evolve the product in new ways that I think are fundamentally different than how Twitter has worked in the past, like
0: those will be equally complex. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So, whatever you do at your job, Canva Presentations can give you a head start on your deck.
4: Let's talk about another uh, kind of nexus of product and policy, which is verification. Uh, So I was thinking about y'all last week when uh, YouTube really stuck their foot in it over verification. Uh, If you don't remember, they announced that they were going to take away checks from various people uh, and that also they'd been just verifying anyone who had more than 100,000 followers and uh, they've since sort of recanted all about that. Um, You know, verification might seem like a niche issue, but to me it kind of goes to the heart of can I trust that uh, I'm talking to the people that I think I am on this platform and, you know, if I can trust that I might use it more I might have a better experience. So, would love to get an update from you on verification. You guys uh, have officially paused this program, but you do continue to verify some people and would just kind of love to hear what what the heck is going on there.
3: Yeah. So, I'm happy to start with maybe revisiting why we we paused and then how we're thinking about it now and, like on the spectrum of pause to launch to where is it now. Um, so we paused verification for a couple of reasons. One, we just did not have a rigorous or consistent enough set of criteria that we felt like um, matched our intent behind the verification feature. Um, we were sort of conflating the notion of Authenticating whether someone is who they say they are, with the notion of whether they are like a public figure, and those are actually quite distinct things that you would validate in different ways. That and you know we we did not have a sufficiently transparent and and self-service process by which people could could apply. And on top of all that, it just was as much as I agree with you. It's an, it's it's um it is a critical feature actually, it's, it's a very very powerful incentive actually um, that that exists in the product experience. One of the only Account level incentives mm-hmm. that we offer, um, other than the follower account, which is also very powerful. All that being said, it just was not our most important problem, and um, you know we decided to put it on pause. As messy as that um, that is the, and what we mean by that is like doing the work to fix everything that I said, we decided was not a top priority, in particular relative to all the more important problems we had within health that we can talk about if we're interested. So that's why we paused it. And, and you know, we did, um, we did say, you know, when we made the pause decision that um, we will continue to, as unideal as it is, we will continue to make sort of um, Twitter-centric, like behind the scenes verification decisions when we think it's in the public interest to do so. Um, but again, that's not ideal because there's no rigor around the criteria or process and blah, 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 blah. But that is the state that we entered when we made that decision. So fast forward now. What's different is that we do, I was talking about how DMs were on maintenance mode and we have we made it a priority. We similarly have decided that building a strategy around identity is needs to be a priority. For all the reasons you just said, it's actually like a pretty critical way of understanding the credibility of who you're talking to. And by the way, verification to me is, one of the things that we feel is important as part of a strategy is really tweeze, teasing apart what we mean by verification because there's actually – we believe that we should be exploding um, into more decomposed features what the notion of verification actually means. Like you can actually decompose identity into lots of different things like validating whether someone is a human or a bot or validating whether someone is who they say they are from like a real name standpoint or validating whether someone is a public figure is another form of that. Um, and I, I think we have we just had this very um, – Course feature with the blue tick that kind of meant a lot of things to a lot of people. Um, and two, the criteria around it wasn't wasn't particularly um, clear to folks, nor was there a self-service process. So we're now building a strategy that allows us to, um, we think, solve those problems in the right order. Um, and so this isn't something that internally we consider paused anymore. It's going to you know, it'll take some time for us to actually manifest the work into something that people will be able to see, but that's different than, like, a year and a half ago, my response would have been similar to your question about the edit button, which is, like, cool it's, it's a problem we could solve it's not anywhere near the most important problem so we're not solving Wait, it. But
2: right did now. you preempt the edit button question already? Was that I find with K I
3: have to. I actually preempt some of my tweets about product launches with the edit thing because at this point it's like <laughs> it's such a reliable meme that you know the first comment's going to be yeah but edit button. So I just figured I know my audience. Well, look,
4: I'm very excited because uh, once you start working on verification that will mean that your last remaining problem to solve is the uh, edit button <laughs> and then maybe that can also come out of pause. Look, but I- you think that's the last <laughs> remaining problem? I think yeah is
2: this is why casey's I'm, not in charge of product at twitter <laughs> yeah that's very true I, mean, I, I, I will say it's a feature you should have wait i want to yeah. focus on verification for one second casey brought up youtube i think youtube had a botched rollout botched communication they ha- did have a relatively good core idea right which is we're gonna have different kinds of badges for different people right so if you're an actor you get the verified actor badge or whatever it is that they were gonna do at the end of this, all are you still just delivering blue check marks, but through different routes, or are you going to show different kinds of things? Do I get a different verified badge that says I am? Uh, this is actually Neil Patel versus I don't know Darth. Like this is the real Darth.
3: I think there's a couple dimensions that are interesting. So one, in terms of what the product experience would want to do, like, and what the customer wants, like, what what exactly are you verifying? I think is one question. And to me, that there are, there are lots of potential dimensions. Like, like, are you verifying humanness? Are you verify? Which what I mean by that is like someone as an individual. Um, validating that someone is an ind- individual versus a bot versus a business, like that is a dimension of verification that you could choose to implement in a product. Validating credibility is another dimension. And how you do that, I could imagine lots of different solutions to. It seems like the approach YouTube was trying to take was kind of around credibility as denoted by some like category that that YouTube decides exists. I think that that's, that's not an inherently flawed Idea. I think maybe the way they implemented it didn't go over super well, and I actually don't. I didn't really like grok the specifics of how their solution worked. Um, but I think that the notion of validating someone's credibility on a certain topic is actually pretty interesting, especially in the context of Twitter, where you know Casey Newton might be the journalist that you know from The Verge, but actually he's got like a quantifiable perhaps level of credibility around WWE that if he's like it's true. jumping B- true, in, by the way, yeah, sorry, that's true by the way, yeah. Well, you would think at least. Um, <laughs> I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I think that's an interesting notion where, given how people talk on Twitter, you know, one of the challenges, I think, is that people kind of, like, boxed in into the, the follow graph that they have. Um, like, one of the one of the things that we hear often from, from customers is, I feel like I have a lot of followers who follow me for a certain dimension. Um, but, you know, like, I remember having this conversation with MG Siegler. I hope, I hope he doesn't mind. But he was one of our investors back in the day. And he was talking to me about Twitter. And he's like, I'm followed by the VC community. community. Community, but whenever the Michigan game game happens, I want all I want to do is tweet about the Michigan game. But like, all of my like investor community and Silicon Valley community friends
4: are like, "Ugh, I want to mute MG." That's Um, me during every WWE pay per view, by the way, which is why I recently created an alt account. But go on.
3: (laughs) Well, exactly, and I think this this circumstance that we're talking about here actually cross cuts a lot of interesting parts of the potential product experience that we're excited about, be it giving people a place, a space and control around having conversations with people who have shared interests. That's one of them. Two, how do you even find the people who have the same shared interests as you? Like That's kind of one of the superpowers of Twitter is helping you stay informed about the things and talk about the things you're interested in, but it's actually quite challenging and indirect to do. The entire service is predicated around following accounts. And following accounts is very powerful, but very distinct than following an interest. Like if you care about the WWE, you have to know the people who are experts, who have credibility in that um, in that topic or in that sphere. And that's a lot of work. It's not as simple as following the WWE account, i.e., Casey might have some good thoughts, maybe. Um, <laughs> and so th- that's, um, I think, identity um, plays into that. Um, we have an initiative we're calling Interest that is a huge, I think, um, will be a fundamental change to how we all use the Twitter experience that you're starting to see the beginnings of with what we're launching. Like we we, um, we had the, one of my favorite launches recently is um, we elevated lists, right? Like you can swipe between your lists. To me, that's like scratching the surface of our work to give you more control around um, kind of diving into what's happening in a specific interest sphere that you have. And today, those interest spheres are a collection of specific accounts in a list because lists existed as a product primitive but you can imagine forming more sophisticated um, spheres that are collections of people collections of interests where twitter then does the work to find the people who are most relevant um, and only show you their tweets if it's about that interest rather than like every fucking thing that casey can says
4: Can mm-hmm. i let to swear oh yes i, I, I mean know. i never would but you can i don't believe you <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, Anyway, so I think I realize it's it's sort of it touched on identity and then some other stuff, but I, I really do view identity as a cohesive layer that we have to think about in the context of the whole cohesive application.
4: I love that you guys are focusing on this, and I hope you find various ways to like elevate and display that stuff. I've always thought that verification features should be open to way more than just like the journalists and the politicians and the public figures. If somebody is on Twitter and they have verified their real name and their phone number uh, like I want I want to know that right uh, it's it's very helpful to know you know when you're dealing with a with a Russian bot versus an American right uh, for all kinds of reasons so I think verification uh, and all of the kind of maybe subclasses that you described is just like such a great way for y'all to start thinking about it
3: yeah and there's some there's some explicit signals of credibility that you know customers would opt into. And there are some implicit ones that we've already built into the product experience, right? Like, it's no coincidence that when you look at your tweet, we now show you what client you tweeted from. Mm-hmm. Um, it's no coincidence, now that when you look at your profile, we show you automatically, like, when that person joined Twitter. And these are all sort of implicit signals of credibility. I think where we haven't done as much work is on the explicit signals. Um, and I think that's a really interesting, there's a lot of interesting potential there.
4: Yeah. Uh, let, let's do a little bit of a curveball. What? How does Twitter think about ephemeral content? And uh, will I ever see Twitter Stories?
2: That's your curveball.
4: I mean, not like a crazy curve, like a you know.
2: Well, you preempted the edit button, man. That was that's <laughs> like the last one. Like, he's yeah. got like the, the ultimate curveball in the hopper. <laughs> you've talked so much about policy and trust. What about the edit button? That's how you. Get it.
3: <laughs> I would go back to you know we were talking about that spectrum right. On, yeah. on you know on one hand you've got private on the other hand you've got public. Today, the, really the two form factors we support are tweets as a as a mode of conversation and, um, and DMs as another mode, and arguably maybe somewhere in the middle you've got protected accounts, which is kind of like uh, sits in there. Um, to your question of ephemerality, I view that as another dimension that um, is really important for some customers, for some specific set of circumstances where you want to talk to people, but you're not quite sure you want it to last forever yet um and so i think as a as a dimension to focus on as a as a specific customer problem like absolutely i'm i'm very interested in exploring how we might give customers more control where ephemerality is just one one of those dimensions i think there are other dimensions that you know while we can get excited and talk about it from morality because there's lots of other kind of standards of how how other apps um, do this i think other other dimensions like control around who can see or control around who can participate is really critical you know we talked about my example of you tweeting something and and you know in fact actually the Kara jack conversation is a perfect example of this right like Kara and jack were trying to have a conversation in public but this were, is real
4: quick. This is a sort of thing that happened on Twitter. Kara Swisher, our good friend and colleague, uh, talked with Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, and, uh, and and they had a sort of a extended back and forth on Twitter this year.
3: Yeah, I, I believe that, that the intent behind that conversation was to have a fireside chat where the two of them were on stage and the world could watch. But it was actually quite difficult for them to do that for a number of reasons. One, like the mechanics of the conversation and following it, were really challenging, and a lot of that we're addressing with our work in the little T app, um, the, the public beta that you've hopefully seen. Um, but I think another one of the issues was it's actually quite difficult to have a fireside chat when you have like a billion people screaming in your ear. Like imagine we had like tens of thousands of people in the studio with us right now talking into our ear while we were talking to each other. No, thank you. And so I think that's another uh, dimension of how our conversations features work or don't work today. That's really important to us. That and ephemerality um, I believe, is is up there as well. So you will see us, you should expect to see from us various product features, because there's no silver bullet for all of these things, but you should expect to see various product features that try and nail different intersections of the spectrum.
4: I'll tell you, my, my request is, I would love to set all my tweets to just go private after a year, basically. And the reason is just that cultural standards change enough that I either have to delete all of the tweets on a regular basis, or uh, or I could just like set them private, right? Because we've now seen Seen uh, bad actors sort of digging into people's old tweets, taking them out of context, and like wreaking all kinds of havoc. Uh, so I would just love a way to never have to think about that again. Uh, basically,
2: I mean, I pay some, but I pay other companies to delete my tweets for me. I'll just pay you. <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's it's in terms of what what, do you, what service do you use for that? Uh, tweet deleter dot russian dot biz like it's <laughs> like it's not i don't love it
4: they're all super shady looking
2: yeah like i really truly do not love that this company has like your twitter login yeah
3: yeah it's actually kind of sh- shocking to me that it's clear that you care so much that you're willing to
4: <laughs> i mean journalists careers end because someone digs up an old tweet you know it's like it, it really is a, a very existential i realize we're like in pretty niche territory but no you
3: know, no we're actually not though okay. like the fear of Fear of speaking in public and fear of retaliation or fear of being harassed and harass- harassment means many different things to many people or fear of being held accountable for something that is like not what you meant. Like These are some of the biggest reasons why people don't tweet, which is why like we actually take this very seriously. And there, there are many different product solutions. I mean, auto deleting tweets is something that we could do. Um, we have... We have thoughts on other things that we could do as well. But, like, the point is, like, this problem we're hyper-conscious of. And if we believe that getting getting people to feel comfortable talking in public is critical— um, and that there need to be bridges to that that mechanic, so because spe- you know talking in public is is pretty terrifying for most people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're super interested in, in in coming up with multiple solutions to solve it.
2: Do you think about like literally auto deleting tweets as part of ephemerality, or do you think that's a different kind of product?
3: No, I I, I do think it's a it's a form of ephemerality for sure. Um, I would say it's a don't take this the wrong way i think it's a, it's a less interesting solution to the same problem it's but it's absolutely a form of ephemerality but we we are interested in exploring a couple other solutions that have the same potential effect of you not having to worry about what you say lasting forever but giving you some some of the other control that i think is missing because i don't think the ephemerality alone um, solves the most important problem, but we may, you know, we may realize that we should still we should still offer that. But um, so I'm not dismissing it. I just think that we we've got some we've we've got some other ideas around how we might solve solve it in interesting
2: ways. This is a curve. It's not really curveball. It's it's uh, it's thematically connected. But I was just thinking about um, how a lot of people I know experience Twitter and like uh, things people personally experience. And I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about harassment. Like Twitter as a service is a primary vector of harassment and abuse for a lot of people something I have experienced waves of, something in particular like the young women on on like the Verge staff experience quite a bit. How are you thinking about fixing fixing the product elements that enable harassment in that way? Good question. Um, So
3: first of all, everything you just described is why health has been our number one priority for the last three years. Uh, health, I think, is really distills down into a few different things. Uh, conversational health, where abuse and harassment are kind of central focus areas of, um, is obviously one one bit of that. And then sort of information integrity is another piece of that. Like, if, if as a company that believes that our purpose is serving public conversation, if that conversation isn't healthy, if you can't trust the integrity of the information on it, then what is the point of the whole thing? Like, the whole thing is existentially at risk if we can't ensure those two things. So that's the basis for why health has been our our top priority for the last few years. In particular, conversational health is critical because the fuel that helps people stay informed on Twitter is atoms of content that were tweeted by real people. And if we if we are not able to serve the needs of those people, whether it's the tools they need to um, to talk, or whether it's the risk mitigation to ensure that they're protected and not being abused or harassed, then we can't expect them to feel comfortable talking in the first place, which jeopardizes the whole purpose of of the platform. So that is why we've prioritized it. The way I think about it to your to your uh, to your question is we have to do a mix of things. There's no silver bullet, but we have to clarify our rules, make sure we have the right rules, we have to enforce our rules the right way. We have to make sure that we're building that we have to make sure that we're proactively enforcing those rules because a lot of the a lot of the problem right now is customers have to face the burden of experiencing and then uh, and then reporting the abuse, which is even if we have the best reporting flows, that's it's almost too late at that point. And so one of our biggest initiatives this year in 2019 has is something that we call proactive health. And our literally our goal is how do we enforce our rules before our customers have to enforce them themselves through reporting. And so I think um, you know by January of last year, about like 15% of our um, terms of service violations that we actioned were done proactively. At this point now, it's about 50%. So we've made a huge amount of progress actually just enforcing our rules more proactively so that you don't have to report it or even see it in the first place. Um, so that's, that's one way that we think about it and one set of things that we do. And then um, the other is actually building more product mechanics that give you control around having a healthier experience so that you don't rely on the rules and Twitter's enforcement of those rules in the first place. So one example of something that we've launched recently that, again, is scratching the surface, but it's an example of what you can expect to see more of is we launched a feature that we call author moderated replies, where you can hide globally a reply to your tweet such that no one else can see it in the conversation thread. And that's the first time we've ever given anyone the power to make a moderation decision that affects what other people see. Obviously, you've been able to block or mute people, but those are sort of local decisions. Um, and we think this is important because we want to change the balance of power between the, the various actors in the conversation. You've got, you've got a few different actors. You've got the original tweeter. You've got the the repliers who are participating and then you've got the audience like everyone else and the um the balance of power was t- has been totally off kilter in the past like um people replying have had too much power in abusing or harassing, which again, like everyone has different interpretations of what that means to them. And we want to change that. And one way we're changing that is author moderate replies where you can um, you can hide something. I would eventually love, like we, our plan is to open APIs around this. You can imagine developer tools that allow you to create super customizable actions around what you want automatically hidden in your replies um, so that we, we shouldn't have to build all of these first party features. Like we should build core ones, like you being able to hide a reply. And you might kind of like In Automator, you can create super complex actions around automating things. Like You ought to be able to create rule sets that you can share with other other people. Um, So that's an area. A lot of the conversation we were just having around ephemerality in terms of giving people control around who can participate, they're in service to the same goal. If we give you more control around how conversations unfold, that is one other thing that will help you feel like you can have healthy, controlled conversations um, about topics that are interesting or sensitive. Whereas, you know, some people don't feel comfortable having certain types of conversations right now because they're entirely dependent on us enforcing a global set of rules that spans cultures, geographies, time zones, and like that's just inherently not scalable.
2: Do you think you have to shrink that? I mean, that that's something I think Casey writes about in the interface all the time. So we talk about like maybe internet scale is not the right scale. For the world, like you need to create smaller communities more proactively. Is that something, you know, you're talking about lists and maybe interest groups, but just around people and individuals and audience. Is that something you want to do more proactively, or let people do themselves?
3: I mean, the, the way I would articulate it is the way we think about it is um, we want to invest more in decentralizing moderation capabilities. Um, right now, it's entirely centralized, um, and I think in order to pursue a concept like that we have to think about other product mechanics where that sort of decentralization makes sense because one of the beautiful things about twitter is that it's extremely fluid right there is no clear space like everything exists in the twitter sphere and it's a very powerful um but fluid thing about the platform and so it's one think one of the really interesting um problems that we're looking to solve you know Moving forward we've been talking about a lot recently is is how we can um, how we can decentralize more um, and so I, yes is the short answer to your question but I think this is this is why we have so much fascinating work in front of us and like so many problems that we have to focus on but we're deliberately trying to be and hopefully you all see this with the work that we're doing we're trying to be a lot more ambitious about what problems we sign ourselves up to solve and we're trying to be a lot more ambitious about um, the the speed at which we're solving them and you know believe me i'm sure people are still frustrated with the pace that we're moving but like we have we're trying to be deliberately increase that pace and and really solve some of these these hardy problems the truest curveball of them all
2: apple is putting out uh, catalyst which is their framework to bring ios apps to mac twitter on stage demoed is one of the highest profile catalyst apps we haven't heard a lot about it from developers are you involved in that app do you think that framework is going to work do you think that iPad apps on the Mac or or the future? Is that something you're excited to be a part of?
3: What I'm really excited about is that Apple is making it a lot easier to actually port iOS, specifically iPad apps. Onto the Mac, and I think you know we had to make a tough decision uh, a couple years ago, a few years ago, to deprecate our Mac um, presence because the cost of maintaining yet another client was just too high, and we couldn't we couldn't keep up to pace with um, you know the features that we had in our other clients, and so um, you know we, we just had to focus. Um, so what I'm excited about with the 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 Catalyst um, stuff is that 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 equation is a lot different now. And that the ease at which developers can, you know, bring their iPad apps to life on the Mac is um, is a lot easier, relatively speaking, in a way that can ensure that. Um, as we do product development on iOS, that it's you know it's coming to the Mac um, at a far lower cost, and so yeah, I'm I'm very excited about it. I've I've been involved. I'm, I'm you know I see the builds, and you know we we're waiting for Catalina lo- to launch, obviously, and we're excited to bring it bring it to customers.
2: Are you spending cycles being like, we got to make this as Mac like as possible? Do you have those kinds of event? I mean, that's like one of the big questions, right? Are these just going to be sort of bad iPad apps sitting on? top? I mean, Apple's own Catalyst apps are like not great. Are you? Trying to perfect it and make it feel very native.
3: We definitely we like one of the lenses through which we're looking at the, the the product experience is like what are the core aspects of this feeling like a desktop app that we should make sure we we build into the experience that aren't as um, aren't as in the forefront when you think of it in the iOS context. For example, like drag and drop. Drag and drop is a pretty critical um, fluid, uh, sort of aspect of the experience that I I feel like has to work right, um, in the Mac app context. And so, yeah, we, we definitely like, we look through that filter as we think about the product experience and, you know, especially in the context of like, what do we put in the V1? We may not get everything right in the V1, but like we, we, we are not, I don't think we would go through the effort if we just wanted to have like a lazy port of, um, something that feels out of place. So that's, um, we definitely want to make sure it's, um, it feels great like anything else we launch.
4: All right, last question. Uh, Bringing it full circle. You are a video person. Uh, What is the future of video? Is that my brand? That's, (laughs) yep, that's how you're known and always will be. No, I'm just kidding. Um, What type
3: of person are you?
4: uh, A tall one. So you're a video person, uh, among other things. And what is the future of video on Twitter? And uh, should it look like TikTok?
3: It's a loaded question.
4: It? No, it's an uh, open question. I don't have feelings. There's what special. does
3: it looking like TikTok mean to you? Like, uh, what do you think of when you say that?
4: Well, uh, Twitter once owned Vine where people sort of made wonderfully creative entertainment in looping six second uh, you know, videos and then that went away and then another, another company came along and made new looping videos and people are now doing very very entertaining things and it's like very popular um, at least for the moment. Um, so I just wonder if you think that is part of video on Twitter or if you think Twitter on vid- or video on Twitter will look totally different.
3: So I, I, and the reason I asked the question is because I, I feel like there's two different aspects so what you're saying, like, what does video on Twitter look like, is different than like what creation tools should we be creating? Because mm-hmm. like you see a lot of TikToks on Twitter. Like a, yeah. the main way I find great TikToks is actually on Twitter, um, and they they render they render you know quite fine on Twitter. What we don't provide and what we haven't invested, you know, anywhere near the same amount of time and effort in is um, I think a lot of the basis of what companies like TikTok do is build the tools that help creators make those that interesting content, which is somewhat distinct from distribution and discovery. You know, I think that the way we think about it is like we we, we have to prioritize a core set of jobs that we believe customers hire us for. Creating super com- compelling short form video content is not um, a main job that we get hired for. People do it still. Like there's lots of things that, we, that aren't in our focus that people end up using Twitter for like, it's a big product, but I don't think this is an area where we're like extremely differentiated, and so it's not like a top priority for us. But I do think that the the ecosystem is all is obviously super fascinating, and I, I you know I've personally spent a lot of time thinking about how you can give people tools to create compelling video content because you know that's kind of what my startup did too. You
4: are a video uh, <laughs> person,
3: <laughs> but um, but yeah, I think we we need to make sure that um, we're prioritizing the things that are core to to why people hire Twitter every day and make those things better before we try and do the ancillary stuff that we're less differentiated in and I think is less important for our purpose.
2: All right, Kayvon Begpour, thank you so much for joining the Vergecast. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you, guys. And specifically, thank you for staying for the entirety of our conversation. (laughs) All right. My thanks to Kayvon Bakepore, head of product Twitter. Also, thanks to Casey for joining me. That was really fun. we got to do that again. We'll be back on Friday with a chat show, back on Tuesday with an interview show. On and on it goes. Hit me up. Let me know who you want me to interview. These suggestions have been very helpful. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. I also just love hearing your feedback on the show. Tell us how to get better. It is tremendously useful. And it's also just great to hear from Odie. So hit me up at Reckless on Twitter. We'll be back on Friday with the chat show.